Hello. If you are hearing me now, you are about to hear a special addition to the Slate Culture Fest feed. We announced a short while ago that Studio 360, the absolutely wonderful PRI show hosted by the great Kurt Anderson, is joining the Slate podcast fold. The show will continue to air on the radio in all the places that it does, but it will also appear in Slate's podcast feeds. And so we are presenting this week's episode to all of you. It's a show about writers, writing, and a disquisition on the word moist about which you might have strong feelings. Or perhaps you don't, but you will learn about people who do if you go on and listen, which I heartily encourage you to do. It's really one of the most excellent and sophisticated, consistent explorations of culture in audio form anywhere. We're so proud to have it in the Slate Fold. I hope you'll give it a listen. Stew. Stew. Dear. Dear. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Well, don't be sniffy about I'm not pens. being sniffy. I think I'm you mean, are. No, no. You've got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show... You think maybe this is an experiment and you are being tested. Everything just becomes scripted. You take out all of the worst mistakes, the ones that you can find... Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. You might have heard our Studio 360 news. We have moved our offices and studios to Slate Magazine, and that excites me. We're all excited about making great news stories and interviews for the radio show and expanding our podcast offerings as well about meeting our new Slate colleagues and figuring out the best ways for Studio 360 to collaborate and cross-pollinate with them. So while we're doing that this month, we'll be sharing on the show some of our favorite segments from the past year or two. This week, books and writing. When Claudia Rankin's book-length poem, Citizen and American Lyric, came out in 2014, I was really blown away. As were people who, unlike me, are experts in poetry. It won the National Book Critics Circle Award for poetry, and it had also been a finalist for the first time this had happened in the criticism category. The book is beautifully and smartly written, and it's this hard, tough, can't-stop-thinking-about-it critique of how race works in America and about what everyday prejudice feels like here in the 21st century. Claudia and I spoke not long after the book was published. I asked her why she decided to call it Citizen. Why Citizen? Because we're talking about a kind of uh, equality, and um, that's the one place that you take it for granted. One thinks, one hopes that... When you step out in that role, with that identity, with that passport. That that overrides that, racial that distinctions. It overrides dist- racial distinctions, you know, sexual, gender, yep. all of those things. Yeah. You, the book opens with this series of, of uh, these vignettes of racism playing out in everyday life, some of them tiny and subtle, some of them larger and overt. Um, did you sort of make a collection of those over the years and, and then use them in this work? I, well, a collection in the sense that they were collected in my body, some of them, you know. <laughs> you mean they happened they, to you? They happened to me. Yeah. But, um, but in the last few years, I actually did a kind of archival thing where I went around um, to friends and said, tell me a story where 
you are interacting with another person of a different race, and suddenly you understood that what was happening, ha you know, was happening because you were black. And so these, some of these stories were collected in the last couple of years, in the last few years. Huh. Would you, would you read one of those stories for us from the book? Sure. You're in the dark, in the car, watching the black tarred street being swallowed by speed. He tells you his dean is making him hire a person of color, though there are so many great writers out there. You think maybe this is an experiment and you are being tested or retroactively insulted, or you have done something that communicates this is an okay conversation to be having. Why do you feel comfortable saying this to me? You wish the light would turn red or a police siren would go off, or you could slam on the brakes, slam into the car ahead of you, fly forward so quickly both your faces would suddenly be exposed to the wind. As usual, you drive straight through the moment with the expected backing off of what was previously said. It is not only that confrontation is headache-producing, it is also that you have a destination that doesn't include acting, like this moment isn't inhabitable, hasn't happened before, and the before isn't part of the now, as the night darkens and the time shortens between where we are and where we are going. That's Claudia Rankin reading a poem from her book, Citizen. The, the reader is, is addressed in many of your pieces as you. And as I was reading that each time, I, I, I thought, ooh, she, she means me, a, a white person reading the book. Was that the intent? The intent was that it could be anybody. So that one would have to think about what that you was pointing at and whether or not you could fit it, whether uh -huh. or not you could fill it. So I tried to have the pieces shift a little bit. Um, so that it wasn't always clearly uh -huh. the white body or the black body uh -huh. or the female body or the male body, et cetera. You, you also refer to the, the killings of Trayvon Martin and, and Michael Brown in, in this book. Uh, is, it, is it clear to you that there's a connection between the, 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 these microaggressions, these smaller moments of casual racism that you, you write about and, and these killings of black men by, by police and, and in Trayvon Martin's case, a, a, a kind of quasi-policeman? I think so. Uh, and I think it's partly because if on a day-to-day -day level, one systematically believes that what is in front of them is not a human being, then you put that person in a position of power on a jury, organizing um, Katrina evacuations, or you arm that fear and call it policing then you're, you're, you're going to get these kind of explosive events. So that when you have someone like Darren Wilson saying, what I saw was a demon. The, the, what I saw, the officer in the, Ferguson who shot Michael Brown. Exactly. You know, you just ask him a question yep. and he will give it back to you. He will say, yes, I, my imagination told me not that there was an 18-year-old yep. guy acting out, yep. but that there was a demon who, who in, you know, in my reference, was as Alka Holgren coming to get me. Yeah. And, and, th and that, to you, is on a spectrum, at, at an end of the spectrum, and on the other end is some guy not seeing you in line at a drugstore and just cutting in. 
I think so. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, uh, the, I, because I need a way to understand mm-hmm. both things, both the micro and the macro aggressions. Yeah. And I can't believe that they're, they're not in some way connected. Uh-huh. And, and what, what can the kind of writing you do and poetry, let's call it poetry, do to unlock and illuminate those kinds of, of issues that, say, simply a, a prose essay can't? Well, I think because the poetry allows us into feeling, into the realm of feeling, and it's the one place that you can, you know, you can say, I feel bad. <laughs> and and um, that genre does hold that. And I love, I love poetry for that. that. That feeling is as important as perception and description. We've now had an African-American president for six years. That's a good thing. Does the killing of these men and and the wider injustice that those killings may represent erase your sense of the progress of the Obama era? No, it doesn't erase it. It, it, um, I think it's incredibly important that Americans came out and voted for Barack Obama. But one of the things that's been fascinating to me during the last six years, watching the ways in which microaggressions have wheeled themselves even at the president, you know, <laughs> just like being the president doesn't shield you from, from these things. Like what's an example of that that has struck you? Um, well, from the very beginning, even before he was president, when Hillary said, you know, I, Hillary Clinton said, I refuse to drop out of the primary because he might, he might be assassinated. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who says that to their running mate about their running mate? Well, there was, and there was Joe Biden when they were both running, and he said, "Yeah, he's a very clean and articulate guy." Yeah, there was also that. <laughs> then there was um, Roberts in the Supreme Court forgetting how to inaugurate the president, <laughs> and so it had to be redone. You think that when, that had to do with Obama's race? I don't know, but <laughs> when else have we had to do it yeah, again? Yeah, yeah. When be. else did you forget the words that <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. the president? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. You, this is the yeah. thing. You're I so don't touchy. Know. <laughs> yeah. But, it, it, I mean, between, you know, in all of the flavors of conversation that have been provoked by Obama's presidency, by these uh, deaths and, and Republicans like Rand Paul taking on ideas of criminal justice reform – it seems like, you know, if conversation and fairly frank conversation about race is a good thing in America, eh, this hasn't been a terrible few years. No, I think that's one of the things that has been heartening, actually, that um, we have had conversation. I have, I actually have been very um, happy. Can I use that word? You may. <laughs> Please. Be happy. With, uh, with the response of the media to what went on in terms of the lack of indictments. Um, you know, so I feel like people are showing up. People are showing up and they're discussing these issues and they're discussing the complexity of the issues. And I, I think in that sense, what we want is conversation. You know, part of the problem is that a lot of these things have been let go, not discussed, not looked at, and so they continue. Claudia Rankin, this conversation with you has been my absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. And uh, I look forward to reading your next piece of work. Thank you very much for having me. 
I spoke with Claudia Rankin in 2015. Coming up, a race-conscious retelling of Snow White. This isn't a book to make you feel cozy about who you are and where you're sitting and what your position is. I think nobody (laughs) comes out of the story looking particularly good. (laughs) What the novelist Helen Oyeyemi sees in that mirror on the wall. That's ahead in the Studio 360 from Public Radio International in association with Slate. This month, we're settling into new offices and new studios with our new colleagues at Slate Magazine. Slate makes some of my favorite podcasts, like the one that shares a lot of this show's obsessions, the Slate Culture Gab Fest. Here are the podcasts Dana Stevens, who you'll hear first, along with Julia Turner and Stephen Metcalf, talking about the new versions of the Ken doll that Mattel just released. This tweet breaks down the six different types of Kens, and uh, it's all the better if you're looking at the grid. But I think the words also kind of evoke the images. It says, which new Ken are you? Bisexual model, Rachel Maddow, Bernie would have won, (laughs) 15-year-old app developer, hottest lesbian on Tinder, or Chad? (laughs) (laughs) I like the idea of a Ken being Chad. That was a bit of the Culture Gab Fest, a podcast from our new colleagues at Slate. So as we unpack and settle in this month, we wanted to share with you some of our favorite Studio 360 segments from the last couple of years. This week, some of my favorite talks with authors. Helen Oyeyemi was born in Nigeria and raised in London. She excels at a certain kind of literary mashup. Old folk tales plus supernaturalism transformed into more or less modern stories. I spoke with Oyeyemi when she published Boy, Snow, Bird, a terrific novel that borrows the basic premise of Snow White to tell the story of three young women living in a small Massachusetts town. In her version, there is a lot more emphasis on that manipulative mirror on the wall. Nobody ever warned me about mirrors. Mirrors showed me that I was a girl with a white blonde pigtail hanging down over one shoulder, eyebrows and lashes the same color, still near black eyes, and one of those faces some people call harsh and others call fine-boned. And my complexion is unpredictable, goes from near bloodless to scalded and back again, all without my permission. There are still days when I can only work out whether or not I'm upset by looking at my face. That is Helen Oyeyemi reading from her novel, Boy, Snow, Bird. So this story has a few major surprises that I shall not uh, give away. But instead of me trying to tiptoe around them, why don't you briefly describe this strange story? Um, in a lot of ways, it's a story about thinking that you're not involved in something and then suddenly finding that you're right in the middle of it. One of my main characters is a young woman called Boy Novak who has a difficult past and she runs away from it but finds herself unexpectedly becoming a wicked stepmother. And it's set in 1950s and 1960s Massachusetts. Um, Some some aspects of it are my retelling of Snow White. And this is your first novel, not set in England. Do you think of this as an American story quintessentially somehow? I do. I think it's a story that could only happen in America. 
I mean, it begins in the mid-50s, a time of um, these questions of worth um, that were connected to physical appearance. Yeah. And Boy being somebody who... She's misinterpreted a lot. She's misunderstood a lot based on her physical appearance. She's um she's kind of a Hitchcockian blonde, <laughs> very yes. very cool, um, languid, but internally very very anguished. <laughs> um, and she doesn't correct people's misapprehensions of her. Boy um sort of gradually becomes aware of these automatic privileges that she has when she finds herself in contrast with other people that she meets in Flax Hill. Yeah which is the name of the little town in Massachusetts. You were born in Nigeria and grew up in London and have lived since in in New York and Berlin and Paris and now Prague. As far as I know, there may be more. You obviously love big cosmopolitan places. Um, So why set this story in this twee little New England town? Um, It was part of a way of making it a modern fairy tale. Like, it's it's the ideal compromise, right? Like, it's in America, but it's in small-town America. Yeah. So you can have um, the sort of microscopic and the telescopic in the same um, aspect. Boy ends up meeting uh, this local jeweler and his gorgeous daughter named Snow, and they marry eventually and have another daughter named Bird, thus the book's title. Yes. Um, Along the way, you start to lean on and deconstruct Snow White. Was that your idea and plan from the beginning, or or did that occur to you as you were writing? No, it was my idea. I thought I had to take it apart, but um, obviously you have reasons for taking a story apart, and mine was to take it apart and to expose the mirror as the villain, um, because I feel like in the original story the mirror just gets away with it. Um, So I kind of had to point out that um, the mirror is not the arbiter of who's the fairest of them all, and um, all three characters challenge that. Now you've given away the whole book. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, did did you? Uh, you must have reread the Grimm's Snow White, yeah. Yes, I did. I reread it, but but I always feel like my rereading was biased because I I kept a very close eye on the mirror. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, it uh, it becomes much more than that idea, more than a retelling of Snow White. It is this this gripping story that is both supernatural and, as you suggested, historically specific about race and femaleness, which is not unfamiliar territory for you. Your books have dealt with those subjects. What did you feel, other than, oh, Snow White, that you had to say differently about race and time and gender? I think I wanted to talk a little bit about how difficult it is to be yourself um, when other people won't let you be, when they take your appearance and just hang any number of assumptions on that. Uh Um, And there's no room to actually see each other and to actually communicate on any meaningful basis. Um, After a while, everything just becomes scripted and you're just exchanging pleasantries based on on your appearance. And And I think that what I like about all three characters is that they very, very fiercely want to break out of that way of living. They want to be real people. Uh, the the Snow White idea of skin as white as snow uh, becomes potent as we realize that there are black characters in this book who are passing as white. And I've read that you think of passing as white as a uniquely American thing. Yes. I mean, there aren't, there aren't very many accounts of it. Um, happening in Europe, but also it seems to say something about the very mixedness of America Uh and how everybody actually is each other. Could I have you do another reading? Yeah, I'd be happy to. At this point in the book, Boy is dealing with uh, the differences in complexion of her adopted child, Snow, 
and that of her own child, the aforementioned bird. Snow would place a finger on each of Bird's palms and raise her little hands up when they closed into fists. She'd say, I'm your best friend, Bird. Bird seemed to understand and believe this, and her eyes searched for her sister when she was away. Bird adored Snow. Everybody adored Snow in her daintiness. Snow's beauty is all the more precious to Olivia, her grandmother, and Agnes because it's a trick. When whites look at her, they don't get whatever fleeting, ugly impressions so many of us get when we see a coloured girl. We don't see a coloured girl standing there. The joke's on us. What What do you want readers to think and feel after they hear or or read that passage? I mean, this isn't this isn't a book to make you feel cozy about who you are and where you're sitting and what your position is. I think that um, nobody <laughs> comes out of the story looking particularly good. <laughs> right. Um, the only way to feel is implicated because we are all implicated in labeling each other and yeah. and treating each other based on um, assumptions. Yeah, and I wondered, knowing that it was written by a black person who grew up in London, mm-hmm. how much, how many years or moments over those years of experience did this draw from? Um, I don't think I was conscious of drawing on any personal experience. By by that point in the book, I was completely absorbed in Your little, Boy and what she was going to do and yeah, yeah. what was going to happen next. Uh, I often ask people who come here for their sort of aha moments as children or young people. You're, you're still a young person, but as children, um, when some work of art decided them on becoming what they are, was there one for you? I've read that uh, Little Women was a big deal for you. Yes, it was enormous. Um, it caused me this tremendous pain that made me want to fix every story that I thought was, that I thought something was wrong with, and here I am fixing stories. Um, so I think that that was a big one. I crossed out the things that I disagreed with, and I wrote in um, the true, <laughs> the true endings. Um, oh, so really the story, not just no, – it wasn't copy I had no fear of um, the printed one. <laughs> I, just, I just went in. How old were you? I must have been nine or ten. And did your parents think that was the cutest thing that they'd ever seen? They were absolutely furious because it was a library book uh-huh. and there was some explaining to be done. Huh. Um, but oh well. <laughs> so I will not go over again and again as people inevitably do – She's so young. She wrote this fifth book. She's 29. But clearly, by some measure, you were kind of a prodigy because you published your first one when you were still in university that you'd written when you were a teenager. You must have read just a ton of good novels to be able to write one. I was reading so hard. Like by the time I was, let's see, 15, I was on to Kafka and Camus and the and the. And I have that thing where I can't pronounce like lots of words because I've never said them to anybody. I've only read them. It's, I always um, <laughs> when my own daughters did that. It that was the cutest thing ever. <laughs> so yeah, I hope people think it's cute and just not what is she yeah. saying. Um, did you read a lot of fairy tales? Did you read Marquez and? I did. I love. I love Marquez. Yeah. Um, I'm convinced I'm one of his characters, Fermina Daza from Love in the Time of Cholera. She and I are one. Um, the thing is, I don't tend to read to pay too much attention to genre, uh-huh. which I think might be why my um, writing is is the way it is, and that there are so many shifts in tone and register. I'm just as comfortable with um, hard realism um, as I am with stories where people fly away with the washing sheets. Yeah, you've said that when you were a teenager, you didn't expect to live much longer, and you didn't expect to be alive at thirty. Mm. Why? 
I, well, I suffered from clinical depression. And also I was, um, <laughs> I was suicidal in just like this particularly reckless way. Um, as in people would dare me to drink iodine in science lessons and I would just do it. I was just very ready to throw away my life. I don't think I understood that there was anything to live for. Uh-huh. Um, and so weirdly, that was a time at which... I felt my most powerful. It was strange. Like my my parents would tiptoe around me, teachers would tiptoe around me because they knew that I could do it any time, and they just left me to find reasons to live, um, which I found in books. Which sounds very cheesy, but all I wanted to do was read. How scary and courageous of your parents to say, oh, "I guess you'll find your way out of this." I think they they knew me and didn't know me at the same time. Like they knew me enough to find out that to think that I would figure it out, but they yeah. didn't know what on earth was going on with me. <laughs> Unlike a lot of authors, you have a very light footprint online. You don't tweet. You used to blog. You don't seem to blog anymore. Is that because you'd rather save your brain power for your fiction? Basically, I don't have that many thoughts, <laughs> so so I have to cultivate the ones that I have like, very carefully. And I like to write to my friends, and I like to I like my life to be mine. So you're, you're just a 20th century person. Basically. Helen Oyeyemi, it has been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. I spoke with Helen Oyeyemi in 2014. Her newest book is a collection of short stories called What is Not Yours is Not Yours. One of our newer features on Studio 360 we call Guilty Pleasures. We talk to people who really like some cultural thing that's surprising, either because it seems so against type for them or because it's so unfashionable or unpopular. You wouldn't think that a single word could qualify as a guilty pleasure, but we found a writer who embraces a pretty normal word, just five letters that gives a lot of people the heebie-jeebies. I'm Sadie Stein. I'm a contributing editor at the Paris Review, and my guilty pleasure is the word moist. There is a campaign out there to end the word moist. 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 Let's say it again. Moist. Oh, that word. Moist, 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 moist. I hate to say the word. Moist. It's, moist. it's a little human now. Moist, 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 moist. <laughs> Could you stop saying that word? What word? Moist? Oh, seriously, stop. I won't use the M word because so many people around this building don't like me to use moist. Here's a look at line. I'm a writer and an editor, too. And I think partially when you have to think about words and synonyms all day long, you develop certain appreciations for words that don't have an alternative or an equivalent. And it's the only thing that describes what it does. This banana bread is deliciously moist. This grotto is moist and mossy. If you look moist up in a thesaurus, you'll find a lot of words, none of which really exactly describe the textural quality. Um, chewy, completely different. Dense. You you wouldn't say wet. That That would be horrible. Um, that would be undercooked. In the UK, they actually do have synonyms. They say damp and they say squidgy, which we don't say here. But for a culture that claims to hate this word so much, we've done a really singularly poor job of coming up with any alternative. I think sort of the root of my love for the word moist is that 
My grandmother, who was not a good cook, she was sort of an actively terrible cook, would make for every single family birthday and celebration this really 50s kind of concoction called wine cake. And it's made from mix. Just mix the yellow part of our marble cake mix batter as usual. And instant pudding. Yes, thank goodness for Jell-O instant pudding. And then you kind of soak it in a sherry syrup. So the end effect is really damp. And increasingly, as I started baking and cooking for myself, it just happened to be the way I like it. And I know that's such a personal thing. For instance, whenever I watch The Great British Bake Off, they will often look for a much drier crumb than I think looks absolutely the most appetizing. It's baked, but it's wet. Yeah. It's quite wet right underneath as well. It's damp. Slight soggy bottom there. When I first started using the internet to look up recipes, I would, just as a matter of course, look up moist banana bread, moist and chewy brownie, moist turkey breast, whatever it was. I was so excited that here we had before us this entire um, internet in, in which we could look up exactly the quality we wanted. And this was what I wanted. And then as often as I found things that match my description, I would find various screeds insulting the word or people talking about how repulsive they found moist and how how the word made them shudder and how it literally made their hairs on their arms stand up on end and all this reaction I had never experienced in my life. And I remember I was at a concert on the Lower East Side and this couple started talking about how much they hated the word moist and they were laughing about it and everyone joined in and started kind of picking on it, ganging up on it. And I got kind of upset. I said, well, what would you say instead? And they didn't have an answer. I said, do they want to live in a world where baked goods are dry and flavorless? I mean, I don't. I don't want to live in that world. And then a couple of years ago, I saw that some linguists had done a research study. Why do people hate the word moist? And moist had actually been named the most hated word. This, according to science, there's a new study conducted by Dr. Paul Thibodeau. He conducted five experiments over four years with approximately 2,500 participants. Wow. And people who were averse to moist also responded similarly to words such as phlegm vomit, leading him to believe that the disgust is related in part to the association with bodily functions. It doesn't evoke any disgust in me, but I do think maybe it had a little bit to do with our kind of prudery. I mean, anything that can be interpreted in a sexual way, people start giggling like they're on a prank call. So that might be part of it. And you just don't want to be caught out in the position of, of being the person making the unintentional double entendre. Maybe it's kind of sex negative that we hate the word so much. Now when I hear it, I feel a certain defiant protectiveness. I'd always been taught to stand up for underdogs, and this seemed to me like a really easy target. Um, I should say, I don't want to have like a moist handshake or anything like that but I just want the word to be in regular circulation I want to be able to use it without feeling ashamed plus one I have 
no problem whatsoever with moist. That piece was produced by Tommy Bazarian. What is the thing that you love that's hard to explain or defend? Tell us about your guilty pleasure, and we might feature you on the show. Email us at studio360 at pri.org. Still ahead, there's a reason that meeting a favorite author can sometimes be disappointing. I work really hard in all of these books to create a better person on the page than well, I am in real life. It uh, wouldn't be hard. <laughs> <laughs> We're never better than we are on the page. Novelist Richard Russo and Jenny Boylan, good friends on writing characters and being characters. That's next in Studio 360 from Public Radio International in association with Slate. Studio 360. We are playing this month some of our favorite recent Studio 360 segments this week about books and writing. Richard Russo was in his early 40s when he published his great novel, Nobody's Fool, in 1993. It focuses on the residents of a fictional mill town in upstate New York called Bath. It's mainly about Sully, who Paul Newman played in the movie version of the book, and his slow-on-the-uptake friend, Rub. Today, Richard Russo is in his mid-60s, and after all these years, he just brought Sully and Rub back to life in a sequel to Nobody's Fool called Everybody's Fool. The writer and novelist Jenny Boylan has been friends with Russo for about 25 years. Hey, Russo. <laughs> hey, Boylan. How you doing? We gotta stop meeting like I this. know. <laughs> Good to see you. You too. Back in the 1990s at Colby College in Maine, they shared an office as professors. But at the time, Jenny Boylan was Jim Boylan. She made the transition to Jenny about 15 years ago, and it threw her friend Russo for a loop. She wrote about it in her acclaimed memoir, She's Not There. We invited the two of them into Studio 360 to talk about big plot twists in their books and in their friendship. Richard Russo, hello. Hello, Jenny. When was the last time I called you Richard? I think before we met. <laughs> <laughs> Which would have been 20 years ago? Yeah. How long have I known you? Yeah, yeah. I've, I started calling you Jenny much later than you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Russo, you're on. <laughs> <All right. laughs> hey, so there's this rumor you've got a new book out and that it's, in fact, called Everybody's Fool. Let's hear a reading from it. Have you got something for us? You bet I do. Please set it up. Tell us who Doug Raymer is and what he suspects about the garage door opener that he's found. Well, Raymer's Raymer's wife, Becca, um, has had a terrible, tragic fall about a year before the book opens up. And and, and there's a note uh, and he finds that his his beloved wife uh, is not only dead, but is but has been unfaithful. And she is about to run off with someone he knows not who. Uh, and he and he has no way to find out until he finds a remote, a garage door remote in her car that does not open the door to their garage. And so that's where we pick up. Could be she let somebody borrow her car, Cherise continued, and this other person dropped the remote in there. But, Raymer said, if somebody borrowed the car, why would that person have his garage door opener on him? Wouldn't it be in his car? Do you carry your remote around in your purse? I don't have one. I don't even have a garage. And it's none of your business what's in my purse. Okay, Raymer said, ignoring her. 
With Charisse, you did well to ignore a good portion of what she said. Then how did it get wedged up under the driver's seat? She shrugged. Could be an innocent explanation is all I'm saying. He raised an eyebrow at this. Admit it. You've been thinking sideways since Becca passed. Selling the condo, she meant. Moving into the Morrison Arms. Selling the RAV instead of his Jetta. All three decisions motivated by spite and self-loathing. And anyhow, Charisse went on, standing over him now with her hands on her hips. Suppose you're right, which you aren't. Your plan is to do what exactly? Go around to every house and bath and point that thing at all the garages? See which door goes up? Hmm? That was, in a nutshell, the very plan taking shape in Raymer's brain, though he was reluctant to admit it to someone so clearly determined to deride it. But was it such a bad idea? After all, Bath was a small place, and he could cover it neighborhood by neighborhood in his spare time. Wouldn't that be just good mechanical police work, eliminating the innocent from your inquiries? Oh, that's great. Actually, you know what I love about that? There is a woman who is the voice of reason. Now, they, they tend to be the sharper <laughs> knives in the drawer. <laughs> trying to talk some sense into a man who has got an idea, which seems perfectly logical to him. Mm-hmm. Is that a, do you think that's a, a fairly typical uh, interplay between men and women in your work? In my life. <laughs> <laughs> Don't start with me, Russo. <laughs> are we going there so soon? <laughs> no, no. Yeah, I, I, I think um, Charisse is very much the voice of reason throughout this book and, and, various, and various other women in, throughout the course of the novel. They seem to be involved with men, number one, who are circling the drain in one fashion <laughs> or another. Um, and, and they can see where these guys are headed, though they can't. And, and they, try to, they try to interrupt their, their, their progress. And, of course, these guys are having, having none of it. I was delighted to see, of, of all the characters that we re- revisit again, of course, Revan Sully, Maybe we should take a moment and just explain who are these characters? Uh, what is their friendship like? Well, Sully in the earlier book is, uh, is 60 years old, and he's just fallen off a ladder and shattered his knee. And he's done hard physical labor all, all his life long. And, um, and now um, he's coming kind of into the final turn, and, and um, um, he can't work anymore, but he also can't not work anymore. So what is he going to do? Uh, he's come to depend a lot more on his, uh, his buddy, his uh, best friend, really, um, Rub squeers, and Rub is um, is is a little bit slow, not terribly quick on the uptake, and and needs a lot of instruction and a lot of um, pointing from his best friend Sully. You know, we should mention the the relationship between Sully and Rub. It's really as deep as anything in a married relationship. Do you find it? Did you find it hard to write that that about that kind of relationship? I ask you just because it's it's the kind of relationship that we really the relationship between friends Mm -hmm. um, and maybe particularly between men. I think it's Mm -hmm. hard to write about. It was a difficult relationship because on face value it seems to be one sided because Rub really needs Sully for everything. But there is something going on there um, between them. He's Rub is a kind of foil and and maybe. Sully needs rub the way Don Quixote needs Sancho. That's funny. I was going to say the way Dean Martin needs Jerry Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, both. So, so there is, and and also I think that that part of Sully's mechanism, the way he goes about life, um, is to ignore all obligations that are enforceable 
Um, and so he leaves his family. But what does he go? He goes, he goes and finds Rub, who becomes his surrogate son. Nobody's Fool is not only a great novel, but it's also a great film. You didn't write the screenplay for the movie version of Nobody's Fool, but it's very faithful to your novel. Paul Newman plays the character of Sully in the movie, and Philip Seymour Hoffman plays Doug Raymer, the small-town cop. What's the matter now, Raymer? Broken taillight. It's the third time. One more time, Sully, and I'm impounding this heap of yours. Jesus Christ. Raymer, it's Thanksgiving. Yeah, well, if you fixed it the first time, this wouldn't happen. It's $15. You can mail it in or you can come by the station. If it's not paid within 30 days, you'll be held in contempt. Boy, I hope you get laid sometime soon. Yeah, someday, smartass. I'm gonna nail you. Hey, when you least expect it. <laughs> that was Paul Newman, <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman. Even for people who read the book first, it's, it is really hard not to picture those actors when those characters are reintroduced in this new novel. Do you care that readers might be picturing those actors? Uh, it would be rather hypocritical of me to care because that's how I see them as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They say that great actors own roles, um, and I think that that's true. I was already 250 pages into the book when when we got the terrible news about Philip's death. And, mm. and I th my first thought was, well, I'm going to have to start thinking about somebody else now. Um, it would be best to, to, to put Phil Philip's image uh, out, of my, out of my mind. And then I thought, no, that's crazy. I mean, if... In a perfect world, if this is made into a movie half as good as Nobody's Fool, um, then some other actor who doesn't look like Philip Seymour Hoffman is uh, is going to come on and f and find Raymer in in himself in in something inside him, and that's that's and that will be just fine. Do you think that readers believe in a, in some sort of fictional Richard Russo based on the voice of the man who's telling them this story? I, I'm asking you this, which is really more of a statement than a question, because yeah. even though I write mostly nonfiction these right. days, people uh, assume that we're going to be friends. I'm frequently, in fact, running into people here on the streets of New York who who want to know if we can go and have coffee right then. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What do people assume about the about Rick Russo, the author? Well, I work really hard in all of these books to create a better person on the page than well, I am in real life. It uh, wouldn't be hard. <laughs> <laughs> so no, I, yeah, I think I think I think that's that's what writers do. I think we're never better than we are on the page. You write a book and it takes you forever, and you make all kinds of mistakes, and then you finally figure out what you're doing, and um, you go back and you take out all of the worst mistakes, the ones that you can find, and you make it look like you knew what you were doing all along. That's right. the final illusion. And that's the Jenny Boylan that these people on the streets of New York have want to have coffee with Jenny, not you. They, they, <laughs> they want to know my final draft. They yes. don't want to know my first they, that's draft. That's right. The first, the, the ugly drafts, they, 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 they're, they're not interested in that at all. They want the you of your very best sentence, the very best sentence that you ever wrote. That's the you that they want. All right. So I wrote about our friendship in my memoir, She's Not There. And I, I may have never asked you this question. Mm. Did you feel that I... Was the Richard Russo that I described in She's Not There someone that you recognized? Did that seem like you? Sure, sure. That was recognizably me. So what I got a sense of, a fascinating sense of, of, of seeing myself through your eyes was revisiting times in our relationship during your transition that were painful, um, other times where the power of our friendship really took over. And those were wonderful to relive. In that book, I printed uh, an email that you had sent me 
not too long after I came out to you, and you wrote this, uh, and I quote, Boylan, I've always known and never doubted that if I called you, you'd be right there. I never knew that you'd show up in heels, <laughs> but that's hardly the point, isn't it? I think you had a great sense of humor about my transition. Uh, I think it was necessary, but it's fair to say that it was also something that you struggled with. Of course, yes, yes. Um, some of what I was having so much difficulty wrapping my mind around has now been clarified and is out there in the culture much more. And that's largely, that's largely I think, due to you. Not just the kind of education that, that you gave me before you wrote the book, but the kind of education you gave America in, in writing uh, all, all three of your, your memoirs. I mean, in the culture now, gender is much more fluid, seemed to be much more fluid than it was when you first explained what was going on to me. I mean, did you feel that you were losing your friend at the time? Is that part of what was... At the very beginning, at the very beginning, I felt that. But over the course of your transition, of course, it became obvious, clear and apparent to me that that was not going to happen. And once I put that aside, then, then everything changed. But what also was in play in our relationship had, I think, nothing to do with gender. And that was the sense that I thought that I knew you in a way that intellectually I know, you know, we all know that, that nobody knows anybody completely. Part of the reason we become novelists, I think, is to uh, plumb to some degree the mystery of, of, of other people's souls. And, but despite that, we go through life believing that we understand people. And when something as fundamental as what you told me occurs, part of what's happening is not just can I wrap my mind around this, but you're saying to yourself, if I was so wrong, what the hell else am I missing? Mm. You know? When you see me now, do you see the person I used to be or do you see the woman before you now? I No, I see the, I see the person that you, that you are now. I see my old friend Jim in you. And I, and, I, and I loved Jim the way I love you now. It's, for me, just kind of not really an issue anymore. Right. All right. So, We're friends, I, I told you uh, at one point after you had told me what was going on in, in, in your life and what your life had been like, and I said to you, um, it's strange because you, there were very few people in my life at that point about which I, I would have said I would change absolutely nothing. And you were one of those people. And that is still true. But you're different. You're 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 the same. You're you're you are my old friend, and you are my new friend, and none of the rest of it just makes any difference. Well, um, I want to ask you one more question about everybody's fool, but I have to make sure I don't weep <laughs> for a moment in response to that. But I guess the question I'm wondering is the same question as it applies to all of these other old friends of yours. The, everyone in that in that wonderful fictional town which is is as real to most of your readers as the lives that they live in mm -hmm. when you started writing about them again mm -hmm. about a dozen years later fictionally 10 years, ten years later yep, fictionally years later. but yep. 23 20 yep. Yep. years later yep. in reality yep. how long did it take before you saw who they were now or did you only see who they were you know what I'm asking? I'm yeah, asking yeah. of you about your character. Yes. the same question that I yes. asked you about me. Yes, yes. And the answer is pretty much the same. I knew they were different. I knew they were the same. And I began to sense that the reason that they were different was not just because they had changed, but because I had. There's a scene between Sully and Miss Burl. 
uh, it's a flashback. And we know that Sully, uh, has, who has just graduated from high school and has a terrible home life, on impulse has signed up uh, to, join the, to join the war. He is, he is this is World down. War II. This is World War II. Miss Burl, on the other hand, is, is not convinced. She fears not that he will die or that he will be injured, but that his self, who he is, will be damaged and he will come back as someone he doesn't recognize mm. and maybe someone that she won't. And I think in the back of Sully's mind, even after signing up, has thought that maybe she won't let him. And she does. Mm. That scene is a scene that I couldn't have written in 1992, 1993, because I wasn't there yet. I hadn't, I wasn't the writer then that I am now. And because I've changed, that relationship between Sully and Miss Burl has changed. It's so funny to be reading this book in the midst of going to um, a 40th high school reunion yeah. for me, because as I've read this book, it was very much the feeling that I had. Here are these people who, some of whom I, I, I thought about a lot, Sully and Rub. Uh, and not only because it's always been our private joke that I'm rubbing your Sully, <laughs> but also um, that there are some people whom I hadn't thought about. Mm-hmm. Um, Officer Raymer, mm-hmm. who I hadn't thought about uh, right. for right. for 25 years. Right. But here they all are, yeah. or many of them are. Some of them yeah. are some yeah. of them are gone. But here they all are, and the point was not whether or not they've all succeeded. And the point was not even whether or not many of them have failed. The point was that here we all still are. Mm-hmm. And in spite of all the changes, they are just like you and me. Uh, what's that? The phrase Mary Carr uses, we are our same selves. Right. Um, and for me, that was tremendously hopeful. Uh, no matter what happens to people, um, we are still our same selves. I think that should be the last word. Russo, thanks for sitting down with me. (laughs) Richard Russo's new novel is entitled Everybody's Fool. It's out now, everywhere. It's great work. It's a great book. Thank you, Jenny. I'm I'm just so excited by the whole thing. That was Jenny Boylan and Richard Russo in conversation last year. Boylan has published a new novel this last spring called Long Black Veil. And that's it for this week's episode. Studio 360 is produced by PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our technical director is... Louis Mitchell. Our producers are... Sam Kim. Skylar Swenson. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. And our intern is... Claude Gillette. I'm Kurt Anderson, and thank you very much for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360, one five-year-old who saw Peter Pan on Broadway was happy to have his disbelief unsuspended. I do remember my parents telling me that I would be able to see the wires, that they weren't really going to fly. Although, actually, the wires were one of the most exciting things about the whole event for me because I could watch magic in action. The Making of Jack Vertel, one of the great musical theater experts and impresarios, next time on Studio 360.